Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Union Chapel. I'm Greg Paris. We're so glad you're here today. Hey, thanks for getting up. I mean, really, I mean, that was no small thing. You've moved your clocks, your alarm clock went off. You can see that there are people waking up right now going, what happened? I don't know what happened. And so you're on top of it. Congratulations. Way to go. Hey, we're in a series in this Lenten season on the subject of the, the last sayings of Jesus from the cross. How many of you would, would agree that many times a person's last words are important words? And they were important enough for the gospel writers to record for us what Jesus said from the cross. And so last week we talked about a word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And today we will see the interaction, the interplay between Jesus and the thief on the cross next to him. Very powerful, very interesting. When Jesus said to this man, today you will be with me in paradise. We've chosen as our text from Luke's gospel, chapter 23. I'm going to read verse 32 and then verses 39 to 43. Our custom is to stand to honor God's word. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. And again, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Now down to verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And may God enlighten and instruct us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Let's consider this uh, thief on the cross just for a moment. We don't know his name or their names. We don't know anything about their stories, but we could speculate that anyone who comes to their late 30s or maybe middle 40s and now are facing capital punishment, this is a person with a story. Maybe his mother had died when he was young. His father uh, may be abusive, maybe a drunkard, filled with rage and infusing this young boy as he grew up with words of, of great disdain and that he would never amount to anything and so probably petty crimes early in life and then more substantial crimes maybe he had committed murder by the time he's 20 years old nevertheless he finds himself now going to the place of execution he may have found it somewhat interesting and maybe perhaps even humorous that he's going with this Jesus fellow I mean there's a great crowd of people around this moment and he's amused by it perhaps you know what are the odds that I would be crucified with the most popular guy in town it's uh, it, it was a moment that may have caused him to reflect I mean he knew some people who had listened to Jesus teach he perhaps reminisced that some had uh, declared that he was the Messiah of God he knew some girls who got religion after listening to him talk but now he's being crucified alongside of him all the attendant people were there, the money changers, the religious leaders, the Romans, the religious hypocrites. They all stood around. They're hurling insults at Jesus. Even this thief joins in. I mean, they're just, he's just happy they're not hurling insults at him. So there he is. 
And just after they had been crucified, now he hears Jesus pray this first prayer, which we learned last week. He heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Something in that moment moved this thief, apparently. The other thief now continues to hurl insults, and now this first thief says to the other thief, what's the matter with you? This guy's done nothing wrong. We deserve what we're getting. Just shut up. Leave him alone. And Jesus now offers these words of forgiveness, and it ministers to this guy. He perhaps reasons to himself, you know, if there was a God, I don't believe there is, but if there was a God, and this guy, Jesus, is representing him, I think I'd like a God like that. And then something happened. Something happened inside of this man. It was probably not a big moment that he was even consciously aware of. But I suspect just a tiny little seed, the smallest possible little seed of faith, sprung up inside of him. Just a glimmer, just a glimmer of hope. emerges into his consciousness. And he thinks, you know, if there is a God, and he's like this guy right here who's willing to extend love and mercy to people who are torturing and killing him, then maybe, watch it now, maybe, follow it, maybe there's hope for me. And then this man hears himself say these words. I think they probably surprised him as he said them because he's not really sure why he's saying them. When he hears himself say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Hmm. To which Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow, what a moment. Luke's gospel is my favorite gospel. Luke is a physician. He records all of the healing miracles of Jesus. He's careful to do that. And then he also reminds us of the primary mission field to which Jesus finds himself caring. And we find in Luke's gospel people who Jesus encounters who are just everyday sinners and outcasts and the unclean and the nobodies, you know, the least, the last, and the lost are all catered to. We learn from Luke's gospel, Jesus' primary mission, which is to seek and to save that which is lost. So it's not surprising to us that Luke's gospel is the only one of the four gospels which actually include this interplay between the thief on the cross and Jesus. Only Luke's gospel records these words, which we are discussing today. So in fact, in life and in death, Jesus associated himself with sinful people. Listen to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. See that phrase, sinners coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So note the juxtaposition. We have people who are least and last and lost who are drawing near to Jesus. No one gave them an invitation. They're just naturally, intuitively drawn to him, while religious folks are repelled by him. 
It's curious, isn't it? Very interesting. And so we remember that Jesus allowed prostitute to wash his feet with her tears. We know that he called tax collectors and garden variety sinners to be his disciples. He touched lepers. He ate with unclean people. The fact is that in Jesus' day, non-religious people were actually drawn to Jesus. The non-religious people, people far from God, were drawn to Jesus while religious people were repelled by Jesus. Non-religious people, people far from God, who normally are uncomfortable around religious people because around religious people you have to watch what you say and watch how you behave and you're afraid you're going to get judged or made made to feel small and and so it was completely different with Jesus that people far from God were actually drawn to him drew close to him now of course that was in Jesus day that non-religious people felt close to Jesus and and religious people were repelled by Jesus Um, of course that's all changed now When Jesus was around non-religious people, they didn't feel small. They didn't feel like nobodies. They didn't feel like sinners. He gave them hope, offered them life. An example of this is in Luke 19 where there's a man from Jericho named Zacchaeus, and he has sold his soul, if you will, to Rome for the privilege of collecting taxes among his own people. And people hated him because he overcharged them, and he became very wealthy as a result. And Jesus was passing through that region of Jericho, and Zacchaeus being short in stature couldn't see so he climbs up in a tree so he can see Jesus and as he passes under the tree Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus and invites himself to dinner and it was a great scandal because you don't go to someone's house for dinner unless there's a relationship and an implied friendship there and so Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house for dinner and before the evening is over Jesus pronounces to Zacchaeus and his family that salvation has come to this house. To which Zacchaeus responds, and I will never, ever, ever be the same again. It's a powerful story. It's a powerful thing. But in this context, Jesus reminds us of his personal mission statement. He had a personal mission statement. If you saw a resume from Jesus, it would include this mission statement. It's found in Luke 19.10. I'll put it on the screen for you. This is Jesus' personal mission. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So as Jesus lived, so he died. His companions at Calvary were two criminals. His final conversation was with a criminal who is now rethinking his life in response to Jesus' character and his mercy. And Jesus offers this man eternal life. Do you you see how important it is? Do you see how important it was for Jesus to seek people who were far from God? Do you see how important his mission was? to seek and to save that which was lost. That's all he did. That's everywhere he went. This is what what he appealed for people to do. There's a statement that I make uh, oftentimes when I'm preaching, especially in other places for the first time. I was about three or four weeks ago, I was in Douglasville, Georgia. Beth and I were there doing a local church mission event and I was there on the weekend, and I used this statement. I've used it here. And any time I use this statement, it always makes people get completely quiet. I mean, the room goes completely still. And the statement is this. After almost 50 years of pastoral ministry, my biggest disappointment in ministry 
my biggest disappointment is how little Christian people seem to care for others who are far from God. See how quiet it is? Yesterday morning, Beth and I were in Noblesville, and we were at a first and second grade basketball game. Our grandson Noah was hooping it up yesterday morning. And so we were there, and the other set of grandparents were also there. Uh, Henry Smith is the president emeritus of Indiana Wesleyan University, and it's always fun to talk to Henry and get caught up, and his wife, Teresa. And so we were enjoying that time together. And Henry's father, Henry Smith's father, was a man named Leroy Smith. What you should know about Leroy is that he pastored the same local church in Frankfort, Indiana, for over 50 years. His local church, which he pastored all those decades, never grew to more than 100 people. So for 50 years, he pastored a church that was 50 people or 100 people or less. And, and so that's a curious fellow. But they named a street after him. I can direct you to Frankfort, Indiana and show you the street, Leroy Smith Boulevard. Right there it is. And the reason that they named a street after him is because for 50 years... The city fathers in Frankfort, Indiana, discovered that if they had a particularly difficult case that wandered into town, for example, a particularly destitute family, you know, here's a family and, we, and, and they're just homeless, they're just lost, and here they are. What the city fathers learned is that they could pick up the phone and call Leroy Smith, and Leroy would take care of these people. And this went on for decades. And so he not only cared for his own congregation, modest though it were, was, he took care of lots of other people as well. I was with Leroy uh, a couple of years ago in conversation at a family gathering, and I was just quizzing him because I'm fascinated by this guy and, and intrigued by his life and, and, his, and his witness, and he was just a marvelous spirit. He's in heaven now, but, but I had that conversation with Leroy, and he was telling me about his, his winter plans, which he had engaged for a handful of years in his retirement. He has a good friend in Florida who runs a ministry, a street front mission in a major city in Florida. And this fellow invites Leroy down to his mission every winter for the winter months. And so Leroy goes down to this mission, much like the Muncie mission here. It's a men's mission uh, for men struggling in life. And Leroy was describing this and his eyes were just dancing. Now Leroy's 85 years old and he's looking at me. His eyes are just alive when he describes this. He's, I get to go down to my friend's mission. He said, he gives me a little cot to sleep on in, in a little closet in the corner. And he said, it's just perfect for me. He said, I just love, love that little cot. And he said, he gives me free room and board. That made him happy. And he said, and, and occasionally he lets me teach a Bible study to the men. But he said, mostly, I just hang out with the men and interact with the men. And as he's describing <laughs> this experience, I'm going, why is he so happy about this? <laughs> this doesn't... And then he summarized the, his whole experience by saying this, as, as he finishes describing this, this setting in Florida, he said, when I'm there, it feels just like heaven. <laughs> and I just thought, well, look at me. I'm sitting next to a Christian. 
Look at me, I'm talking to a guy like Jesus. Look at me, I'm, I'm being influenced by a person who actually gets it. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? There were two criminals. There were two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus. Two criminals and two responses. There were two criminals that day and two responses that day. There are nothing but criminals in the world today and only two responses from those criminals. Because you're a criminal, I'm a criminal, we're all criminals. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's best plan. All of us are found guilty. All have sinned and fall short. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are all criminals, and that's a fact. And there are two responses. And we have people in Jesus' day, and we have people in our day. One set of people say that Jesus on the cross is nothing more than a disillusioned man dying. He's naive, he's sad, he's weak, he's irrelevant. I cast him aside. That's one choice. And then there are those of us who see Jesus as love embodied, God incarnate, giving his life to get through to us, the human race. God freely laying down his life to take upon himself the poison of the world's sin. And those of us who see Jesus through these eyes are the ones who reach for him, realizing that in him we find forgiveness and we find hope and eternal life. And so, and so we look to Jesus and we embrace him. Two criminals, two responses. And the only question left for us today, perhaps for you in this room, is which thief will you be? Which thief will you be? Jesus said to the, the, the thief, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amazing, isn't it? And in that simple phrase, we learn much about life after death and about God's mercy and about heaven itself. And so let's quickly unpack the phrase. Today you will be with me in paradise. Write this down on your outline. Here's the first point. You need the word today. Today. Questions often ask, what happens to us after we die? It's a frequent question. It's perhaps one of the most frequently asked questions in all of humanity for all time. What's going to happen to us when we die? You know, this is the great mystery. This is the great adventure. This is the great unknown. What happens to us when we die? Well, uh, as you study the scripture, you discover that there are a couple of concepts that relate to this question. One of the concepts we see in Scriptural references like 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 is you, you hear talk and conversation about a final judgment, a resurrection day, uh, even related to the second coming of Jesus, some kind of futuristic conversation that there is a final moment that's coming and it's out there yet to happen. Then you have other references in the, in the, in the Scripture that teach us about what happens to us after, our, uh, after we die that's a little more contemporary in the timeline. Let me put a few of these on the screen for you. Matthew 17, for example, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before them. So Jesus transmorphs. It's almost as if the veil of our three-dimensional world is reduced, and now these three men are able to see ultimate reality. And the Bible says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Well, that's pretty bright. 
and his clothes became white as light. So, so now the, the, the uncovered glory of who Jesus is is now revealed to these three guys in this Mount of Transfiguration event. And just then, the Bible says, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, we could spend a whole series just unpacking these verses. What, what does this mean, the Mount of Transfiguration? And we, could, we just could sort it out. I have a question from this text that I want to ask you because someone here may be able to explain it to me. But here are two guys who are physically dead, Moses and Elijah, two guys who are physically dead and yet seem to be very much alive in the contemporary moment of the experience of the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John in their earth suit view Jesus transformed before them, conversing with two physically dead guys but apparently very much alive guys in the moment, Moses and Elijah. So that's interesting and implies that there is life after physical death because here's two guys alive after they're dead. But here's the question I have for you. How did Peter, James, and John know that it was Moses and Elijah? Were they wearing name tags? Probably not. Maybe it was like a game show, you know, where some hostess goes, and now joining Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is the deliverer Moses and the prophet Elijah. Probably not. So how did they know? I, I'm, just, I'm just asking because it's curious to me. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Maybe you could answer it for me. Here's another reference, 2 Corinthians 5. This is from the Apostle Paul. He said, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. In other words, as long as we are in our earth suits, we can't see the unseen world, the spiritual world, and so therefore, we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So absent from the body means being at home with the Lord, according to Paul here in 2 Corinthians. Look at one more reference, Philippians chapter 1. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And so the implication here is as long as I'm in this earth suit, I'm earthbound and therefore don't have immediate access to Jesus but if I leave this earth suit, then I'm immediately accessible to him, which he said is really much better. And of course, we have our own text today where Jesus promised the thief on the cross that today he'd be with him in paradise. And so we have this promise. This is what I believe uh, happens to us when we die. This is after 40 years or so of my own study. I believe that when we die, we immediately enter into Christ's presence, into his kingdom. We are raised to life. I believe we're absent from the body and immediately present with the Lord. I also believe this because of some near-death experiences of some people I've known. We had a woman that we were friends with who suffered a stroke, laid in a coma for 10 days, you know, just on the verge of death, very serious, very, very uh, threatening kind of experience. And 10 days later, she woke up. And she not only woke up, but she woke up almost completely well. There was, there was no effect of the stroke to speak of. 
she woke up, she had all of her faculties, she had all of her mobility, and a couple of days later, she went home. Well, she had a story to tell. And part of her story was that when she laid in a coma, she f found herself in one of those moments in this open meadow. Beautiful grass, lovely flowers growing, and at the edge of the meadow was a stream that was flowing through it. And she said, in the middle of the stream, there were children down in the water with Jesus, giggling and laughing and splashing each other and having the best time. So she walked over to where this event was happening. Jesus saw her, came up out of the water, left the children there splashing around, having a good time. Jesus walked up to her and called her by name and then announced to her that she couldn't stay, that she has to go back, that it's not yet her time, and so you have to go. I'd rather stay. I know you'd rather stay, but it's, it's not your time, so you have to go back. And she said her next conscious awareness and her reality was waking up in the hospital 10 days later. Okay, so you can, you can rationalize that. You can, you can try to sort that out scientifically. Well, you know, her brain was, was out of balance, and she was desperately sick, and and her chemistry was off, and she's hallucinating, and she's dreaming, she's fantasizing about something that's not real. You can go down that road if you want. I just choose to think that she's actually in the spiritual realm, and she meets Jesus. I think that actually happened. I've been at the deathbed of many, many saints prior to their death, and on a handful of occasions in my life, people have reported to me, I've seen my loved ones who have already passed on, who have been talking to me. I said, tell me about that. One guy was within 24 hours of his own death. He said, yet last night, he said, he said, in the middle of the night, he said, I saw my parents. I said, well, tell me about that. He said, they're just standing on the other side waiting for me. I mentioned to you last week that my paternal grandfather, who was just home from an aortic aneurysm repair, was laying in his bed and called for my grandmother who came to the door of the bedroom as he sat up and referred to someone standing at the foot of his bed whom my grandmother could not see. And his last words were, who are you? And apparently at this moment, his, his aortic aneurysm repair had broken loose and he just fell back dead. What's going on? All of, these, all of these instances like this, and there are thousands of other stories that could be told. Books have been written on the subject. And, and it just implies that there is an immediate transfer of life from one dimension to the other. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And that's what I believe. Yeah, that's what I believe. So Jesus' use of the word today, you will be with me in paradise, is reassuring and comforting to us. Now, furthermore, number two, write this down. He said, you will be with me. You will be with me. And we would do well to notice that Jesus didn't say, uh, now, before I can offer you salvation, I need to make sure that you fully understand some things. For example, do you believe in the Trinity? Uh, do you believe that I'm fully God and fully human? Do you believe that I'm incarnate? Uh, do you believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God? Have you been baptized? You know, have you accepted me into, my, into your heart? Jesus didn't ask any of those questions of the thief on the cross. Now, I'm not suggesting that understanding Christian doctrine and being baptized are not important because they're essentially important. 
So important to understand what you believe so you know where you stand and to follow Jesus in obedience through baptism. It's, it's, a, it's a very important thing and everyone should do it. But in this case, none of those things were possible. And so the point is that Jesus looked at a man who had just turned to him and that was enough. It was a mustard seed sized faith, just very, very small. And as a result of that, Jesus offered him paradise. He said, you will be with me today. Now, here's what I want you to hear. We Christians are good at making decisions for God about all the people we think aren't going to be in heaven. We're good at that. And let me just remind you, that's not our job. That's not our role. That's not our responsibility. All that judgment stuff belongs to God. And I have this theory that I've been working on for many years, and my theory is this, that when I get to heaven and I'm going, I hope you're going. When I get to heaven, I hope you're going, because I'm going. So when I get to, did I mention I'm going to heaven? I, I'm going, let me tell you why I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven because I'm placing my confidence and trust, all my trust, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a good boy, because I behave, because I'm faithful to my wife, because I preach the gospel. None of those reasons are going to get me into heaven. The reason I'm going to heaven is because I have placed all of my confidence, hope, and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm going. And so my theory is that when I get to heaven... There are going to be a whole host of people that I fully expected to see in heaven who aren't going to be there. And there's going to be a whole host of people that I was absolutely sure I wouldn't see in heaven who will be there. We're good to remind ourselves of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that says we are saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any man should boast. And so we hear the promise of God's grace given to us. So the thief had very small faith, but it was enough. He had had very little hope, but it was plenty enough for Jesus to say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now that's really great news. That's really good news. That's really good news because that means God's grace and mercy is available to anyone. All you need is just a little bit. And let me tell you who's going to be in heaven. It's going to be people whose heart was sincerely trusting God's grace. That their motive, their motive was utterly sincere in reference to God's offer of forgiveness. God's judgment will be pure, it will be pristine, it will be perfectly just. But our motives and our heart's desire will be the ultimate reference point of God's judgment. So you may be in the room today and you say, well, if I go to church, if I, if I give some money, if I behave well, if I you know, try to do the right things, you know, I'll get a pass, even though I'm not sure I believe all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Listen, in, in, in my relationships, in my business, in all the affairs of my life, Listen, I know, how, I know how to get along. I know, I, know, I know how to work the system. I know how to give the right impression. I got this. Mm-hmm. See, Jesus will, Jesus will cut right through that to the essence of who you are. 
have you given your heart in trusting relationship to Jesus Christ? That's how you make it. Last, uh, last word. He said, in, today you will be with me where? In paradise. In paradise. The Greek word for paradise in this verse is a transliteration of a Persian word that essentially means the king's gardens. So we can, we can start there. Uh, visualize, you know, some palatial estate with the gardens that work their way out the back, you know, for some distance. Maybe with a menagerie of, of zoo animals or water features, you know, just spectacular, beautiful gardens. Just phenomenal. Imagine, imagine the most beautiful place you've ever been on earth. You know, I think about uh, trout fishing in the, in the Rocky Mountains one day. Maybe you've been someplace that's just gorgeous, spectacular, you know, verdant beautiful flowers. Maybe you visualize a desert scene in the spring where the beautiful flowers in the desert with, with these uh, desert vistas in the background. Just spectacular. Well, so the thought of spending eternity in the king's garden with people I love, absent hate or violence or stress or anxiety, sounds like paradise, doesn't it? Sounds like a good place to go. I, uh, I want to submit to you that if people who have already passed on ahead of us into heaven, into this paradise, into the king's garden, if they could speak to us, if they could, one of the things they would likely say to us is, it's better than we thought it was. It's better than we thought it would be. This is better than imagined. The Apostle Paul actually had an experience. He said, look, I don't know, I'm not even sure what happened to me. I don't even know if I was in my body or even out of my body. But I saw things. I saw things about the next life. And his conclusion was, rather trying to explain this to you, he just said, look, here's all I can say. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the imagination of human beings what God has in store for those who love him. It's better than you imagined it would be. Whatever it is, it's really good. Really, really good. A doctor, a doctor went to make a house call to a friend of his who was dying. And as the doctor jumped up on the front porch to enter the house, he left his dog on the front porch. The doctor went in to see his friend. And his friend looked at his doc, his friend, and said, Doc, what's heaven like? The man knew he was close to heaven. He said, what do you think heaven is like? And just as he asked that question, the doctor's dog out on the front porch began to whimper and whine a bit and scratch lightly at the front door, wanting to get in. And the doctor said, do you hear my dog out there on the front porch? Yes. He said, my dog has never been in your house. He doesn't, he doesn't know if it's a good place or a bad place. He doesn't know if it's safe or not. He doesn't know if it's welcoming. He doesn't know anything about your house. But he said he knows I'm in here. And because I'm in here, he wants to come in. And he said, I imagine heaven's like that. Heaven's like that. We don't know what it's like. We've never been in there. But we know Jesus is there. And because he's there, 
it's going to be okay. We learn Jesus' mission statement from this phrase, this interaction with the thief on the cross. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And friends, not only is that Jesus' mission statement, but that should be our mission statement as well. That's where the amen goes in this sermon. That should be our mission statement as well, to help people who are far from God to be drawn closer to God. And then perhaps someone in this room today needs to pray the same prayer the thief on the cross prayed that day. Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And if you pray that prayer with a sincere heart, you don't have to have a lot of faith, just a little bit, just a glimmer of faith, just a glimmer of hope. If you pray that prayer, Jesus will say, yes, today you can be with me in paradise. Amen? All right, would you bow your heads with me? Let's, cl let's close this uh, service, this portion, in just a moment of prayer. Lord, hear our prayer this morning. Friends, I'll say the words for us. You believe them in your heart. Jesus, remember us when you come into your kingdom. And maybe you're a person in this room today and you've never really settled this relationship with God. Here's your prayer. I want to be with you in paradise. I want to be with you. So remember me. And then for all of us, Lord, help us to reach out and to love non-religious people, people who are far from you, and especially those who seem to be so hopelessly lost. I mean, way out there away. Help us to care so that they might see your love, your mercy, your hope through our lives. God, make us people who others want to draw near to, just as they wanted to draw near to Jesus. Fill us with that kind of spirit. And help us to pick up this mission to seek and to save. Thank you for all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right, would you stand with us?